People of God in Christ, Psalm 18 has been our concern and our focus during these summer weeks. And what have we learned about Psalm 18? To begin with, it's a a love psalm. Uh, It begins, I love you, O Lord. But it's also a psalm of praise to God as the psalmist declares the greatness of God, ascribing unto him the great things that he has done. But even more, and it might be say it might be better to say even further, even further, Psalm 18 is a psalm of confidence. And the point has been to tie these three things together: love for God, our praise of God, and our confidence in God, even as the result. I think it's all too easy to come to church each Lord's Day and and say, uh, because uh, we think we ought to say it, we say, oh, oh this is not about me, this is, uh, this is all about God, I'm just here to praise God, never mind me and what I need. I'm here to give my all because God deserves it. Well, God does deserve it, and we should give our all in our worship of God, which is why we... Uh, put a certain emphasis even on preparing for worship each week. But let's not miss the logic, if you will, of Psalm 18, as well as so many other psalms as well. But the point, the, the, the benefit, the God-ordained blessing that returns to us as we worship God is that we are blessed and helped in our faith. It's really a, a kind of false humility to come in to worship God thinking, uh, I only want to give to Him. Instead, a, a true humility says, yes, I will praise you, O God, but I also come in, in such constant need of your blessing to me in Jesus Christ. Perhaps here is uh, yet another time to go to, to Matthew 11 and, and, and to think about what Jesus did not say in Matthew 11, he, he did not say, Come to me, all you who want to praise and worship me, because I need you to worship me. Uh, he did not say, Come to me, all you who will work for me, because I need workers in my kingdom. He did not say, Come to me, cower before me, and maybe, just maybe, I'll bless you in return. Instead, he said, Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And Jesus went on to speak of his yoke, uh, the yoke of his lordship placed upon the neck of those who come to him in faith. So, so let's make no mistake, to come to Christ, to worship God as Christians, is to bear a yoke and to bow, to bow in subservience to Christ. But having called us to come, having made it clear that to come to him is to come under his lordship over us, yet Jesus says it again, and I and and you will find rest for your souls. Psalm 18 really teaches us the same thing. Where is success in life? Where is prosperity? Where is comfort? Where is confidence from day to day? These things are found where we as sinners would not expect to find them. 
The blessings we seek are found in God, even more specifically, they are found in Christ, but they are also found by faith. And faith requires that we go down before we go up. As we humble ourselves, so we are exalted by God in Christ. So, so let's continue with this logic, this understanding of our worship of God as we look now at the next three verses of Psalm 18. With this being the first point, the head of the nations. Remember what David is doing. He, he is ascribing unto God what God had done for him. And that's what it means to, to praise God, to ascribe unto the Lord the glory to his name. And, and where or what is his glory, we might ask, his glory is found in what he has done for his people to save them. David had been saved. He, he had come out of battle victorious. And, and so he ascribes glory unto the Lord by saying this, you delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known obeyed me. So remember the heading of this, of this psalm. It, it reads, uh, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when he, uh, on the day when the Lord delivered him from uh, Saul and, uh, and all of his enemies, or, or delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. I think it might be the longest. It's at least one of the longest headings that we, uh, that we can read in, in, the, in the book of Psalms. We haven't said too much about this, but it would appear that, that this was not a coronation psalm. In other words, David didn't write this psalm when he first became king, uh, the Lord having delivered him simply from the hand of Saul. That's when he became king. Uh, instead, this is after perhaps the years that it took for David, in one sense, to finish the conquest of Canaan. But now Canaan had been conquered. Now the nations had been defeated. Now Israel, through David, ruled the land and reigned supreme in the land. And David, despite his valiant efforts, in light of his own victories, yet he ascribes it all unto the Lord. You have made me the head of the nations. But there's something here that we need to notice and, and, and something we need to admit. We need to take note how, how small a portion of land was the promised land. We need to, to take note how small was the promised land because if, if I handed you a globe or a, or a world atlas, could you even find the promised land? When I was a kid, we used to spin the classroom globe with our you know, finger lightly touching. Uh, Where will I live when I grow up, we would say. And, and uh, we would wait and see where our finger was pointing. Did you do this? Where our finger was pointing when, when the globe stopped spinning. 
And as far as I can remember, it never stopped on the promised land, the land of Canaan. And why? Because it's, it's so tiny that what are the chances? And we need to admit this, that, that when David wrote, you made me the head of the nations in Psalm 18, verse 43, he was referring to only the nations surrounding the very small portion of the earth that he was given to reign over. And yet the significance was that this was the promised land. This was the land that God had promised to give to Abraham and to his descendants. This was the land that God had promised to give uh, throughout uh, the ages uh, uh, before. So, So we need to read Psalm 18 in context, and we need to take into account the fuller history of redemption and the history of God making covenant with his people. And when we do that, when we take notice of this and humbly admit it, it, it doesn't, or at least it shouldn't, subtract from the story, but, but rather add to it. Because here again we see Christ in Psalm 18. The victory, the success, the triumph that David knew in the land of Canaan in, in, in the tiny portion of earth that God was dealing with at that time in history. His victory was only a picture. Think of it this way, by, by asking how much bigger is the person than the picture. You might have uh, uh, pictures of your children in your wallet. And uh, you might even say to someone, uh, taking out your wallet and showing them the pictures. Uh, These are my children. But the person doesn't say, oh, that's weird, you keep your children in your wallet? No, they understand that it's a picture. Even as you rightly say, these are my children, yet everyone understands that it's a picture. And we can read, in fact, we must read the early parts of the Bible in this way. David ascribed unto God that he delivered him from strife with the people, that the Lord had made him the head of the nations. And it was a great victory. And what followed in the reign of David was a a, a great peace, a, a glorious prosperity for the people of Israel. Because the men no longer had to go off to war. They could stay home. They could be husbands. They could be fathers. They could be carpenters. They could be rock cutters and shepherds and and farmers. Progress could be made. Prosperity could be enjoyed by way of the victory of King David over the nations. But it was only a picture. It lasted a good long time, and, and Solomon, David's son, even received the kingdom from David, his father, and continued to reign over a conquered Canaan. But it was only a picture, a picture of what was coming. By the victory that Jesus Christ, the son of David, would win by his life and his cross and his resurrection. Can we hear then what Jesus really meant when he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Can we hear that Jesus, our King, 
was really ascribing unto his father the victory that he had won. He won it, that must be clear. But Jesus our King didn't say, I have seized it. I have laid hold of it and made it mine. No, he ascribed it unto his Father in heaven by saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So we can also note that Jesus did not speak of his authority, his reign, his rule over just the land of Canaan. He made this claim, let us, let us hear it clearly, that all authority, there's one superlative, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth, there's another superlative, all heaven and all earth, is now under the reign and the rule of King Jesus. He is indeed, as we say, David's greater son. We just don't often stop to think about how much greater Jesus is than his father David. So once again, it, it, it comes to our confidence. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are believers in the King, even the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as the Bible says of him. We can have great confidence in this. We are the people of the King. We are servants of the One, the King, who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. How can we not be confident as we live in this world? But it happens all the time, doesn't it? That our confidence fails. So what we must learn is is that when our confidence fails, it's no failure of Christ in His reign and rule. When our confidence fails, when we lack courage, it's because we lack faith. We forget who Christ is. Or maybe we give in to thinking that it's just a Bible story and not the full reality of, uh, of where we live. So let this be known, let it be proclaimed here this morning that Christ has been delivered from strife with the people, that he has been made head of the nations, even the head of literally every nation on earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. It's why the church has continued to grow throughout the world. It's why the nations are now being evangelized. It began with the apostles as Jesus sent them under his authority, taking the gospel to the nations around and, 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 uh, and, and then further into the nations of Asia, eventually to Rome. You know the story, you know the book of Acts. And, and since then, the church, by way of an apostolic ministry, continues to send out missionaries because Christ is ruling and he is reigning. And isn't that a great comfort? That as the church goes forth with the gospel, we we are not so much establishing the kingdom of Christ, but simply making it known. The kingdom of Christ is coming 
even in our day, not because it isn't already here, but because it is here. And it's being revealed by the preaching of the gospel and the conversion of souls and the salvation of sinners saved by grace and saved through faith in the King who has already won the victory. But it takes faith. We are not so unlike Israel in Psalm 18. Someone might have scoffed at at David saying, uh, okay, so you conquered Moab and the Philistines and the Edomites. Uh, What about Egypt? They're still there. What about Assyria? They're to your north. You're exaggerating, David. You have not made, you have not been made the head of the nations. And people might say the same to us. Ha, Christ the King. He will not reign over me, over us. He cannot rule me. But according to God's word, Christ is king. He does rule and reign even now over the entire world. Do we believe that? This is the claim of Christ by which to believe it. But there is also the evidence of some 2,000 years now of seeing the church grow and grow and spread and of, and of seeing the, the kingdom of Christ coming, coming, advancing, filling the earth. Not to make it true, but because it is true. And because we, the church of Christ, believe it and we are working to bring, to bring the gospel to every nation on earth. And the reason we're working for it is because of the cringe of Christ, the second point. Psalm 18, verse 44, uh, there David writes, As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Again, David is referring to the nations that he had conquered round about the promised land that they didn't sue for peace. They, they didn't say, well, we'll not fight you if, if you'll only just leave us alone and we'll pay tribute to you, we'll, we'll pay our taxes to you. No, they came cringing to David. They gave up entirely. And on one hand, this is a, a picture of faith, even saving faith. It shows us that even today, to, to bow before the king is, is not just to acknowledge from afar that he is king. No, faith is coming to Christ, even cringing before Christ. To put it another way, faith, even saving faith, is to fear Christ, even as we are trusting Him to save us. For some of those who claim Christ as their Savior, yet they do not know him or confess him as their king. Or if they do confess him as their king, he is, he is not the king whom they themselves fear. And on this side of heaven, that will always sound like a contradiction. To trust in Christ even as we fear him. We think the two can't possibly go together. To, to trust and even to rejoice in Christ, even as we fear Him. 
But that's what Psalm 2 says. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Joy and trembling at the same time. Yes, that's what faith is. And the next verse of Psalm 2 says, Kiss the Son, which must certainly mean to love the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. If we don't kiss the Jesus whom we love, then we perish under His wrath. So to fear Christ is not to run away from Him. To fear Him in faith is to come to Him, even more to love Him in faith, and yet to do so because we know He is a King to be greatly feared. And this is where confidence comes back in. Because how much comfort, how much confidence can you draw from a king that you don't even fear? If you have a bodyguard who is no stronger than you are, what comfort is that? But if you have a bodyguard who towers over you, then you know that he towers over your enemies as well. And because he loves you, he will protect you. Joy in Christ comes along with the fear of Christ. Bow before the King. Come cringing before Him. Receive His salvation. And you will find a joyful confidence in living under His reign, His rule, and His great and precious promises to you. As you are a humble, fearful subject of His kingdom. On the other hand, the picture of, of uh, cringing before Christ is also a, a picture of judgment, even of the final judgment. Revelation 6 gives us another picture, the vision given, uh, one of the visions given to the Apostle John of the second coming of Christ and his, his final judgment upon this world. Revelation 6 verse 15 says, Then the kings of the earth... And the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the rocks, uh, hid themselves in the caves, and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. And who can stand? One difference is that Psalm 18 says that they came cringing to me, wrote King David. And this is true of the final judgment as well, that while they may call upon the mountains and the hills to fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of Christ, yet the mountains and hills will not hide them. And they will be required to come. And as they come... They will come cringing before the king whose authority they rejected in life. The king whose honor they spurned in life. And so the king who will end their life and judge them through all eternity. And so lastly, foreigners and fortresses. Verse 45 reads, Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Again, it's a picture. I'm, 
I'm, I'm sure we have we have uh, we have been there, uh, uh, or, or I'm sorry, if we had been there, uh, we would not have the domesticated view of David that we probably have. David was a warrior. David was a killer on the battlefield. He surely knew how to how to put a man down quickly, where to stab him, how to dispatch him quickly. And it was because of his battle prowess uh, and that of his army as well that so many surrendered surrendered to him. They, They came trembling out of their fortresses. But the same is true today. It's it's true of King Jesus. Have you ever really considered Psalm 110? I would call upon you and urge you to spend much time with King Jesus on the shores of Galilee. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John a lot. Read the Gospels. Get to know your Savior on the shores of Galilee Uh, Get to know your Savior by His miracles and His parables. Get to know Him by His compassion for sinners, yourself included. Get to know your Savior, but don't forget that He is coming again in judgment upon His enemies. So get to know your Savior by way of Psalm 110. Because there we see Him with a mighty scepter. There we see him coming to cleanse the temple one last time. And the temple is the entire world. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, says Psalm 110. He will execute judgment among the nations. He will fill the world with corpses. And again it says, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, So this is not David in the promised land. It's the whole wide earth. And the last verse is especially chilling because it says that he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. He he may pause to refresh himself, but the slaughter will continue as he mounts that white horse again and rides forth. To finish the job. The question, of course, is where you and I will be on that day. Will we be among his people, having come already into his kingdom and under his saving authority? Or will we or will we be those who are foreigners, those who have built ill-fated fortresses against him? as if we could stand against him and avoid his judgment. Where will we be on that dreadful day? David ruled a kingdom, but it was a, it was a pinpoint on a world atlas. But even now, Christ rules the world, and he calls you to submit, to bow the knee to him, and to receive from him the salvation that only he provides. And as you come to him now, cringing, but also rejoicing in his salvation, you will no longer be a foreigner, but an honored citizen of his kingdom. 
But if you will not, then your fortresses will do you no good on the day of his wrath. He is coming, and he will fill the world with corpses. This is the Christ of Scripture. So come to him now in faith, receive his salvation, enter his kingdom. The other choice is to be called by him later and to fall under his judgment. Even now, all authority in heaven and on earth are his. And his authority brings salvation as we cringe as we come and as we trust him to save us by his kingly power and authority. Amen. Let's pray together. How easy for us, Lord Jesus, to miss the full picture, the full revelation that is given to us in your word, of who you are, King of kings, Lord of lords, and what that means, and how it is by your authority that you provide salvation, and that one day, by your authority, you will judge the whole earth. May we see these things, even in Psalm 18, but throughout your word, and may we indeed gladly bow the knee to you and receive the salvation that only you can provide. Thank you, King Jesus, for all that you do for us. In your name we pray. Amen.